the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Folks, welcome again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Happy that you're joining us. So is Pete Paquette, the engineer, par excellence. And Andrew Herdliska is the producer. And Jared Wilson is the guest in Kansas City, Missouri, author of Friendship with the Friend of Sinners. Jared, welcome to Orlando. I hope you're well. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. It's always good to be in Orlando, even if it's just uh, virtually or over the phone. Oh, that's great. Friendship with a Friend of Sinners. What uh, prompted you to write this book? Oh, sir. Uh, Well, I would say a number of years ago, uh, a friend of mine, uh, a pastor friend of mine, uh, redirected me to uh, Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, where it says, um, and thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one would a friend. And something about encountering that verse in, in the way that my friend kind of redirected me to it just planted a seed in my heart about this idea of friendship with God, this face to face idea, whether that's, you know, Moses is seeing kind of a, a pre incarnate you know, uh, what we call a Christophany, which is sort of like a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. You know, some folks think Jacob wrestling with the angel, that's him wrestling with, a, with you know, Christophany, those sorts of things. Or it's just a metaphor for just the intimacy, the, the closeness. Whatever it was, it, it kind of set off a chain reaction in my heart and mind about my relationship with Jesus and how that could be characterized as a friendship or, you know, just a um, uh, an exercise in religiosity. And it made me want to pursue this idea of friendship with Jesus. And when I come to John 15 and see that Jesus says to his disciples, I don't call you servants anymore. I've called you friends. I just drew a straight line from Exodus 33 to John 15 and decided I, I want to start exploring in my preaching and my writing this concept of friendship with Jesus, and the book kind of emerged from that exercise. You open with a chapter called, Where Did Everybody Go? The Possibility of Friendship with Jesus. Yeah, the the idea there is first to kind of set the stage and just talking about the difficulties that a lot of us have, in particular in, 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 in our current climate, in the modern age, with friendship. For some reason, it was easier in the quote-unquote olden days, I think, to make friends. Um, And there's some real reasons for that. There's actually some sociological data related to that. You know, everything from, um, as some have noticed, the decline in bowling leagues, uh, fraternal orders, things that, you know, like my parents and grandparents might have been, you know, a part of. Some of the, the kind of outlets that we used to have for, you know, facilitating, um, you know, regular friendship have, have, have somewhat declined in, in the United States in particular, in, in our society. At the same time, we have this rise in, in social media and the social Internet and 
in, in some ways today, we're more connected than we've ever been and yet more lonely <laughs> than we've ever been, which is kind of a great irony mm-hmm. of, of kind of the social media concept. We're more connected, but we're more lonely. And so in that chapter, I just sort of talk about the, the problems we have, making friends, having friends, and then setting up the idea of friendship with Jesus as, um, as an antidote, as, as, as a remedy to some of the loneliness that we often feel, the disconnection that we often feel. I want to move to the second topic, servants or friends, question mark, the reality of friendship with Jesus. Yeah, in in that chapter, I'm really exploring the different ways um, Christians engage their relationship with Christ. Um, we tend to use, uh, in my mind, one of these two categories as kind of the way we approach or or think about our relationship with Christ. We either approach Him purely as servants, or we can approach Him as His friends. And I'm drawing, of course, from that passage, John fifteen fifteen where Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. Uh, Servants don't know what the Master is doing, he says, but I have called you friends because I have revealed everything to you from my Father. Um, The the idea is not that we are not to be submissive to Jesus. He is our Lord. He is our Master. He is our teacher, our rabbi. We are to obey him. We are to follow him. We are to, in in a sense, um, in a very real sense, serve him. We are servants of Christ. In fact, the apostles use that language. Paul talks about himself as a bondservant or even a slave of Christ. And yet, when we approach our spiritual relationship with Jesus purely in the servant mode, we can begin to think of um, the Christian life as kind of law-driven, as we're kind of earning our keep, we're earning favor, we're earning merit of some kind. We begin to think of, of God's disposition towards us as like a master to a slave or as a lord to a servant. Um, but when we approach the Christian life through the, through the lens of friendship, we can see that God does not look at us as sort of an uncaring master, as a, um, a slave driver. He, he's not the disconnected or ambivalent boss man sitting up in his you know, um, upper floor office, just sort of detached from all of the peons down below. Uh, but he's one who comes among us, and his disposition towards us is as a friend. He, uh, you know, the book of Hebrews refers to Christ as our brother, and that he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. And this just gives us a whole new picture of our relationship with Christ, to know that we wake up in his favor, we go to bed at night into his favor, no matter how the day has gone, to see the difference in our Christian, um, our Christian walk as being a walk of friendship rather than as a walk of employment, so to speak. Jared Wilson is our guest. He's in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, We're talking about his book, Friendship with the Friend of Sinners. Jared, we've arrived at topic number three. Nearer than our next breath, Jesus, (laughs) the close friend. That's right. Yeah, in in chapter 3, I begin to talk about what kind of friend Jesus is. If the first two chapters are really about the possibility, you know, the the struggle with friendship or just the idea of friendship, and then how we're to think of friendship with Christ, the rest of the book, chapter by chapter, is really about what kind of friend Jesus is to us. And in chapter 3, I just talk about the closeness of Christ. He doesn't run far ahead of us. Um, he, he is not detached from us. And in fact, theologically, the biblical picture is what, you know, what the theologians call union with Christ. We are spiritually united to Him. Uh, Paul's language in Colossians, for instance, um, uh, uh, talks about being hidden in, uh, uh, in God with Christ. It talks about being seated with Him. And every time we see this phrase, in the New Testament, in Christ or in Him, we're to think of ourselves as being spiritually united to Him. So what I say in that chapter is, even the feeling of being far from God, which is a very real feeling and tells us something important about our spiritual life, even that feeling is not reality 
um, it's a real feeling, but it doesn't speak to God's distance from us. We have a friend who, in the Holy Spirit, sets up residence inside the believer. He has indwelled our hearts. And so we can know that this friend will never leave us or forsake us. He has so united us to himself that um, he is inextricable from us. He, he, he cannot be disconnected from us. So in that chapter, I talk a little bit about how the omnipresence of God uh, is, is connected to the gospel. Um, in that chapter, I talk a little bit about how um, no matter what kind of suffering or darkness we walk into, we can trust that that Christ is with us, that, that he is not leaving us to our own. Um, and I also talk about how the experience of church and, and, and other um, rhythms of our spiritual life um, can help us, in, in, in the right sense, feel the closeness of Christ. I think this is something that a lot of Christians desire. They want to feel close to Christ, and while feelings aren't everything, it is possible to feel close to Christ, and so I talk about that in the chapter as well. Now I want you to talk about topic four on the unsucking of your gut. Ooh. <laughs> Jesus, the comforting friend. Yeah, the, on the unsucking of your gut. Well, mm. so if we're going to think about uh, what kind of friend Jesus is, we need to think about um, some of our other friends or friendships that we have. And I think a lot of us um, in this life, we, we want to be um, approved. We want to be liked. We want to, with some people, seem impressive. And so we kind of, um, we're not ourselves when we're around them, or we're not totally ourselves. We hold some things back. Uh, we try to put on the, uh, you know, the best, you know, face that we can. Uh, we especially do this at church, which I find um, really discouraging, because church should be the one place where we are our true selves, knowing that we are accepted by grace. And yet church is very often the place where a lot of us, we put our religious self on, and we want to seem super spiritual or super impressive, or uh, we just want to be liked. And what I talk about in chapter four is, is to say Jesus is the friend that you can be totally yourself with. You can be totally at home with. You You can unsuck your gut. You, you don't have to look all put together. You don't have to put on religious makeup. You don't have to put on airs. You don't have to wear a facade. You can just be yourself because you know he will not reject you. He will not condemn you. He will not think of you um, uh, better than you are or less <laughs> than you are. And in fact, because Jesus knows our true selves, he knows what we're really like inside and out. We don't have to pretend with him. We can't pretend with him, but we don't uh, even need to try to pretend with him because the message of the gospel, the good news, is that Christ died for sinners, not for put-together people. Uh, Jesus says elsewhere, um, you know, that he has come not for the well, but for the sick. And so if we can admit that we need him, uh, he will draw so close to us his comfort is such that we can totally be ourselves. And for some of us, that means, yes, you don't have to keep sucking your gut in anymore. Jared Wilson, our guest. We've got another segment with him. I'm Pat Williams. It's the Saturday Power Hour, and you're plugged into AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More with Jared Wilson. Stay with us. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Jared Wilson is in Kansas City, Missouri. He's written this wonderful book, Friendship with the Friend of Sinners. And Jared, we've arrived at topic number five, and it simply says, Just abide. Jesus, the unhurried friend. What's that mean? Well, it, what it means is we don't have to be constantly busying ourselves with religious work or otherwise in order to impress Christ. Um, if in the previous chapter we learned that um, we can be ourselves with Him, uh, this means that when we come close to Jesus, when we're engaging with, with Jesus in our, uh, in our quiet time or in the church service or just in our daily walk, 
we don't have to be so busy that we're actually distracted from him. And sometimes I think, you know, just speaking for myself personally, my pursuit of Christ actually in my spiritual walk becomes almost a distraction from Christ because I'm so busy trying to feel righteous or feel good about my, you know, about my religiosity that I miss the point. And so I use in that chapter, uh, the Just Abide chapter, the image of the unhurried Jesus. And I tell the story um, from Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 10, uh, where Jesus goes to visit the, the home of Mary and Martha. And a lot of us remember that, you know, that encounter. Um, you know, Martha is very distracted by her many tasks, <laughs> the passage says. And she's doing all this stuff to, to serve Jesus and to make him feel welcome. And, you know, none of the things are bad things. She's not, she's not sinning, per se. She's not, you know, disobeying God. She's really busy in the home because she wants Jesus to feel honored and to feel uh, taken care of. So she's doing all these things for Jesus. And yet in the, in the, you know, in the scene, um, Jesus actually chastises Martha, <laughs> and he commends Mary, Mary who hasn't, uh, been super busy at all. Mary's just been sitting at Jesus's feet and listening to him. And and Jesus says to Martha, you're worried and upset about so many things, but really one thing is necessary. And, and Mary has made the right choice. Um, you know, the, the right choice is Jesus calls us not to, to work for him per se, but to know him and to be close to him and to just sit at his feet. And so um, you know, part of the the application I make in in that chapter is about first of all seeing the work of discipleship or seeing the life of discipleship as less about being you know performative, you know, performing for Jesus, and more about abiding with Him, um, reading His Word, praying to Him, developing our communication with um, with the very personal Jesus, just uh, resting from our self-righteousness in order to uh, experience closeness with Christ. Now, it's time for the law against double jeopardy. (laughs) Jesus, the loyal friend. Yes. How, how, How loyal is Jesus? Well, he is the holy judge of the universe. He is the holiest person because he is very God of very God. And God is three times holy. He is perfectly holy. So Jesus is the holiest person who ever lived. He is the only one with the absolute right to judge us. And in fact, um, in in our sin, uh, for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, he is the judge who condemns unbelievers to uh, um, you know to his eternal wrath. He is that holy. And yet, because of the gospel, in, in grace, the holiest person who ever lives does not condemn those who believe in him. He becomes—it's um, not just that he overlooks our sin, he forgives it, cancels it, has promised to eradicate it from us. And when it comes down to it, even after the work of justification, after the work of our conversion, he so clothes us in his— own righteousness, that um, there is never any condemnation for us. I think of Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think a lot of us uh, Christians are, uh, we're, we're so well-versed in the forgiveness of sins we receive when we, when we repent of our sin and trust in Jesus, that we sometimes forget that in that forgiveness, we also receive, uh, again, what the theologians call the imputation of Christ's righteousness, which, which basically mean, means that he doesn't just forgive our sin, he, he covers us in his own, uh, his own obedience. So um, we have not just removed from our account our sin, we have written in our account Christ's perfection, his obedience, and this means that um, we cannot be condemned at the point of our conversion, and it means that all along the way, when, when the enemy comes to accuse us, or just when we accuse ourselves, we have 
in the courtroom, in the divine courtroom of God, um, a protection against any accusation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Jared Wilson, our guest, author of Friendship with the Friend of Sinners. Jared, I want you to talk about topic seven, shooting straight, Jesus, the honest friend. What's uh, really helpful to remember, and it can be jarring for some of us, is that to be in the grace of God does not mean um, that God has sort of a um, a silly grin about our sins and failings. <laughs> um, he He forgives us, and yet He will always be honest with us uh, about the things that He means to work uh, with us on and, and to work on in us. What we can count on Jesus to do is to always tell us the truth. And this means, of course, yes, the truth of grace, the truth of the gospel, but it also means, in the midst of that, the truth about where we fall short and the truth about where we need to um, uh, work and, and, and areas we need to trust Him in. And in fact, I think very often the areas of our life that we are most inclined to hide or to protect ourselves from or to, you know, obscure from others, those are very often the, you know, the very places in our lives that Jesus most wants to deal with us. The things that we want to talk the least about those are the things that Jesus most wants to deal with us in. And so what we can count on is that Christ will always shoot us straight. He will always tell us the truth about ourselves. In fact, he knows us better than we know ourselves. But the truth, as I said, also includes the message of grace. So he doesn't tell us the truth to condemn us. I think of Jesus, for instance, with the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, if you recall, he you know, begins to essentially tell her the truth about himself, but to get there, he has to tell her the truth about herself. You know, where is your husband? Well, you know, um, I'm not married. And, well, yeah, not only that, but you've, you know, shocked up with numerous men, and the person you're with now you're shocking up with. Jesus doesn't do that to this woman the way that the Pharisees might have done it, catching the woman in adultery or, or what have you. Jesus reveals her shame, not to shame her, but that he might cover it. He goes right to the heart of what she's trying to avoid, of what she hopes nobody will see, of what she's probably tired of being condemned over. And he reveals this to her in order to address the truth in her heart with the truth of himself. I am the living water, um, he says. You know, he, he's going to give her living water that she'll never thirst again. This is what he does for us as well. He uncovers the truth in us that he might be the truth for us. Now, and the kitchen sink, Jesus, the generous friend. Yeah, I I really enjoyed writing that chapter. It's uh, chapter eight. I spend a little bit of time in that chapter working through uh, Jesus's high priestly prayer, what's often called his high priestly prayer in, in, in John chapter 17, to talk about how in, in the good news, um, we don't just receive, um, as I said before, just the forgiveness of sins. We do receive that, uh, and praise God that we do, that He wipes our sins away. But we also receive uh, a multitude of blessings. The, the gift of the gospel is thousands of gifts that are given in the person and work of Jesus Christ. John says earlier in his gospel that from the fullness of Christ, we have received grace upon grace. Jesus is a kind of fountain of grace that is always flowing for us. That's in one sense what the living water means as well. It's a, it's a well that will never run dry. And, so, and the kitchen sink is just sort of a setup to um, explore the varied gifts that we receive in the gospel. Um, you know, justification and sanctification, uh, adoption, um, you know, propitiation and, and uh, um, expiation and, uh, you know, the favor of God and the love of God and the grace of God. There's just so much that we receive in the gospel. I just want to revel in that chapter in all the different kinds of grace that we get in, in the grace of Christ himself. 
Jared, we've got about a minute and 15 seconds for you to talk okay. about topic 10. I love you to death, Jesus the saving friend. Jesus the saving friend. Everything culminates in this. All of the gifts that we receive of Christ and his friendship comes in the ultimate uh, proof of his friendship. He says to his disciples during his earthly ministry, there is no greater love than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus himself put his money where his mouth was. He went to the cross to die for us. There's not any greater proof of his love for us. There's not any greater proof of his friendship to us than that he would sacrifice himself on the cross for our sin. And of course, the book ends where that story really picks up steam, which is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as well. I just really want people who read this book, Friendship with the Friend of Sinners, to walk away with the glory of Christ kind of dazzling their eyes to see just the links that he went to to show us his love and friendship. Jared Wilson has been our guest, Kansas City, Missouri. The book, Friendship with the Friend of Sinners. Stay with us. We've got more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando will return. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Jared Wilson, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, Friendship with the Friend of Sinners. We go to Boise, Idaho. Uh, Jared was in Kansas City, Missouri. Nagme Panahi is our guest, member of the Chinese Underground Church. Her book, I Didn't Survive, Emerging Whole After Deception, Persecution, and Hidden Abuse, Persecution of Christians in Iran. Nagme, I'm so pleased to catch up with you. How are you doing? And thanks for your visiting with me. I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tell me about this book, how it came about, and why you wrote it, and who you wrote it for. You know, uh, the ending is for, actually, the church in America. I, uh, as uh, many might know, I grew up Muslim in Iran, came to America, found Christ, or Christ found me, and went back as a missionary in my 20s, about a month. A couple months after September 11, I felt led by God to share the gospel and change the climate of the Iran, um, the that that area and the Iranian uh, country people through the gospel. And God, by His perfect timing, allowed me to be part of one of the largest house church movements in Iran. That's when revival and was happening, and. Um, I got to be the one of the, the pastor's wife to that movement and got to be at the forefront of what was happening with Muslims coming to know Jesus and training them and, and uh, spreading the gospel to, uh, we started more than 30, um, uh, well, over a few hundred house churches in over 33 cities in Iran. And um, then came back to America, and some people know my, my uh, book goes through my journey through uh, an abusive marriage that came to light um, as I was advocating for Saeed Abedini, who was in prison in Iran. Um, as there was, as many know who've walked through abuse, when there's distance with, with your abuser, the fog starts lifting and you start um, realizing certain things. And it was through his imprisonment that certain things came to light. And I was actually told by a pastor that I confided in that I was an abused wife. Mm. That um, kind of just wrecked my world, I guess, really confused a lot of people. And my book really goes through what came about to for that to come to light. Um, do you have any? Uh, uh, I can, yeah. So no. that's, uh, but the book is goes beyond that. It's, it's the journey of uh, dealing with the church's reaction to abuse um, and calling out a beloved persecuted pastor which many were very upset about, um, and then uh, really under, uh, starting to see the Me Too movement and seeing the Church Too movement and seeing that uh, it's really abuse had been an epidemic. We've seen it with the Catholic Church, and now we're really 
not, uh, we're really doing the same with the Protestant church. There's epidemic of abuse. And so years of really processing and trying to understand how to address the um, epidemic of abuse, not just in, in marriages, but in, um, as you know, pastors and churches. And God really giving me a message using my experience in the underground church in Iran um, to uh, show me um, about um, the church here and uh, in a way that we're sleeping and we are being influenced by the world and, and in a way that God uh, God's call for us to learn from the persecuted church and the house church movement and the awakening or revival in Iran. And my book kind of um, goes through all of that. Nagmeg, I'm, I'm interested in the underground church in Iran. Is it is it dangerous to be a Christian in Iran? Yes. So um, uh, uh, um, converting from Islam, becoming a Christian, uh, carries the death penalty. Being a Christian means you, if you write on a form, uh, if you're going to college or even high school, any school, uh, elementary, if you write you're a Christian, you're denied, uh, you're, not, you're denied education. Um, if you write, if you're filling out a resume and they ask you, or if you write out on their form what your religion is, which is usually the case, every single form, whether for school or work, asks you your religion because um, there's open discrimination against Christians. They're actually told to discriminate by the government. People are told to discriminate against Christians and not allow them to work or um, go to school. So if you're a Christian, uh, your possibility of going to school or working diminishes. Um, you, uh, the Christians have a lot of the low-paying jobs or um, manual labor, and the government actually has the right to come and take your property because you're no longer you're no longer considered a true citizen. You're, um, they can come and take your house. They can take your belonging now that that you're a Christian. So Christians in Iran have no rights. They have no power. But they're meeting in homes. They're affecting their society in a powerful way. The Holy Spirit is moving, changing lives. And the Iranian government, who seems to hold all of the power, is afraid of them. The Iranian government, the president continually, and the supreme leader continually says on their TV that the number one threat to their national security is the Christians in Iran. And these are, again, Christians that are Poor, that are weak in terms of the world um, definition, but they're meeting in homes. Uh, they're being guided by the Holy Spirit, who we saw in the early church. We we are called to be guided by the Holy Spirit, not by our man-made religion and traditions, which unfortunately I think the American church has become in so many ways. Not all churches, but and um, and I think there's so much we can learn from the persecuted church and going underground and being able to thrive in a hostile government environment. Do those home churches, do, do these people have Bibles? Yes, uh, different ways. In smaller cities, we try to get audio, uh, audio Bibles to them. There's not a lot of people that can read or write. Uh, but uh, we, uh, I work, actually, you mentioned earlier, the Chinese underground. Um, I work with the Iranian underground, but we work with a ministry called Back to Jerusalem. That is the Chinese vision to take the gospel from China all the way through the 1040 window, which is the most unreached people group, back to Jerusalem. So we actually do a lot of uh, work together with the Chinese underground church to bring the gospel to Iran. So we uh, we also take in a lot of Bibles. Um, just in the last few years, we've translated Bibles and into dialects and languages that it has, and people groups that it has never been translated to, and we recorded audio. Um, Bibles. And so um, it's, yeah, it's uh, so different ways. We get them in electronic format. We get them in uh, audio. We also get the Bibles into actual uh, paperback Bibles. Nagmay Panahi is our guest. The book, I Didn't Survive. And boy, it's a powerful read. Uh, Panahi lived in constant tension from the irreconcilable realities playing out in her own life, in her family life, in the conduct of others, and on the worldwide stage as she interacted with power brokers and well-known religious leaders. Uh, I, I, I've got five topics, and I'm going to go one at a time with you, Pani, uh, Miss Nagme, and 
Here's the first one. Steadfastly honoring God versus being carried away by the tide of circumstances. Uh, Can you explain that? Yeah, I think Jesus' call to be a disciple, the first initial step to die to self, is something we read over and we just say, okay. But to actually play it out through daily our daily living where um, our flesh wants to be puffed up. We want to advance in world terms um, and we to allow circumstances to define and guide us versus really learning to die to those circumstances to ourselves and, and learning to um, learn what it means to be to hear from God, be guided by God, uh, especially, again, like the early church, the Holy Spirit having a key role in guiding us as we submit to Him as God, and um, and learning what it means to honor God. And I think sometimes we think that in the U.S. that's um, not that hard, because we're not in a country like Iran or China where there's so much persecution, but I, it is hard. I uh, Just living in Boise, Idaho, just living in America, I've, I grew up here, I'm almost I'm 46. I came here when I was nine. Um, that, uh, learning, uh, crucifying self and the flesh and going against the tide of this culture and uh, seeking what does it mean to honor God is costly. Um, and so there is a cross. There is a call for us as Christians here in America to carry our cross and follow him and um, honor him in a way that the outside world, like we saw with the early church, people were either being added to the church because of the way God was holy among them, how they honored God, or there was a fear and reverence for the God of uh, God of the Bible, God of Israel, God of the Christians. And we, that, we don't see that anymore. We're so influenced by our culture and circumstances. So it is a call, and it is, it is a price. Um, if we really seek to follow him, there is a price and there is a cross in here in America and in, in, to follow Christ and uh, to learn what it means to be to follow Christ and to be guided by the Holy Spirit for a revival. You know, I just want to add this one thing I've learned about God over the years. I've known him since I was nine years old is he does not resist. He cannot resist brokenness and, and, and dependence on him. So anywhere you see in the book of Judges, when his people cried out, when they were in bondage for so many years, they finally cried out, um, he would rescue them. He would send a judge. And for me, that's my story as well. I, I was in bondage for so many years, but I didn't really cry out. I was trying to kind of make it on my own. And the moment I cried out, he rescued me. And, um, and so it, there is something that God cannot resist, and that's brokenness and dependence on him. And that's where revival starts. That's why the persecuted church, there's nothing special about the persecuted church. It's just that they are under intense governments and they are desperate for God. And God moves where there's desperation for him and there is brokenness for him. And when when his people cry out. So um, that's my hope for for, uh, for us as Christians here is that we would, we would not let it get too bad where the bondage is so bad that we're forced to cry out, that we would learn what it means to um, depend on God, to rely on the Holy Spirit, and to cry out and see Him move. I believe we can see Him move in the same way I saw um, revival in Iran. I would have never imagined. I, um, I, it, I could not have fathomed one Muslim coming to know Christ. Nagme um, Panahi yeah. is our guest. We have another segment with her. Stay with us. The book, I Didn't Survive. I'm Pat Williams, your host for the Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We will be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Nagme Panahi is our guest. She's in Boise, Idaho. We're talking about her book, I Didn't Survive. Uh, Nagme, here's the second topic I want you to get into. A personal reality versus 
public persona. Uh, what does that mean to you? Um, I think um, we've kind of, I think my generation, but definitely the generations after, we've been raised in a um, kind of a social media world where you present one uh, image, portray your family in one some way or yourself, even with all the filters, and, and there's uh, another reality. And I think a lot of people saw that when I was advocating for sight. There was a happy family photo in front of Disneyland. And and a lot of us have a lot of uh, secrets, a lot of things that we don't want others to know. And uh, we have a public, um, um, per, we portray things publicly differently than things that um, are. But the Bible, God of the Bible calls us to be transparent, especially to each other, with each other, because with exposure and transparency comes healing. And um, so that's that's what I'm uh, addressing there is the importance of um, really uh, instead of hiding, ex- exposing, and being real and authentic with one another. And I think especially in the Christian community, that's how we become a body and that's how we grow and that's how we reach the loss. Uh, next topic. Genuine faith versus hypocritical religion. Yes, <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I mean, uh, there's, I think we see each other in, we see ourselves in a great light. This morning I was reading about taking the plank out of our own eyes before addressing the speck of dust in our brother's eyes. I think if we're not careful, we can be hypocritical. We can, um, over the years I've learned to pray that God would um, give me a humble, repentant heart and show me because uh, in our flesh, we don't really see much fault with ourselves. We can justify and minimize. And intimacy with Christ means being exposed and open and um, real and authentic. Now I want you to talk about this topic, truth and caring versus the end justifying the means. Um, yes. So, uh, sometimes we, I think sometimes we hide what truth is because we're trying to, um, justify, uh, and it's related to the hypocrisy, justify, um, saving an institution, for example, hiding things in marriage or hiding things that are happening in church. Uh, where the pastor or someone in leadership is abusing the flock. And we um, do that and we justify it in terms of, well, I'm saving the institution of marriage that God so much cares about, or I am, um, you know, saving the institution, the church, which is, uh, you know, uh, bride of Christ, and I'm trying to defend that. And that's not who God is about. Um, We learn from, from the Bible that Jesus God who created Sabbath from day one, from the, the book of uh, Genesis, uh, Jesus came and broke Sabbath in terms of the, uh, uh, the, the way those religious leaders, hypocrites thought. Um, and he came in, uh, on Sabbath, specifically did miracles and um, did um, healings, especially healings. And it says in the Bible, that's what got them angry the most and wanted to kill Jesus. And so uh, Jesus was addressing a certain issue. It wasn't an accident that he kept healing on Sabbath. He was trying to say the life of the person is more important than an institution that you think is so important. It actually was built to protect the person. The church, marriage, all of that was built. Sabbath was built for the person, not the person for that. So if the institution is not protecting, is not nourishing, is not encouraging, is not building up, it's instead it's harming, it's abusing, then the institution is no, if, if, exposing it. If, if it makes the institution crumble, then it is what it is. It's, it's about rescuing the one sheep. And Jesus came to save a person, not an institution. So uh, it goes with the hypocrisy. A lot of times we think we're doing God a favor by trying to uh, protect an institution where the heart of God is mercy and 
for the to save the one to save the broken, not to necessarily be so uh, protective over an over an institution. And even I mean, Jesus explains about Sabbath that David did break the law when he went into the house of God and ate the consecrated bread. That was actually against uh, what God Himself had commanded. But David was in a place of desperation; he was running for his life. And so we can't. We I think we can check our hearts before God to see if we've kind of fallen into that place of hypocrisy when we um, protecting something becomes more more than protecting someone and the weak and the broken, which is where the heart of Christ is. Now, and, and I do want to add this, that in the, yeah. in the last days, Jesus will say to the righteous, like, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was, you know, you, can't, you, you gave me water, you gave me food, you gave me clothes, and they will say, when did we see you? And Jesus says, uh, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers. So if you want to walk with Jesus, if you want to minister directly to Jesus, it's, it's, it's ministering and walking with the least of these, not the powerful, the celebrity um, pastors or Christians or people. It's really walking with the least of these. That's where Jesus, that's where you, you will sense Jesus and you're ministering directly to Jesus. And now, uh, Nagme, I want you to talk about obedience to God versus loyalty to others. Yes, over the, I think it started with, um, well, um, I'm going to give an example. Uh, there's been few examples, but I think there's times in our life where God, we are so attached and so connected and so loyal to a person. I had that in my marriage. Uh, my husband was the only man I'd ever been with. It's been seven years since our divorce. He divorced me. And I still am, have been loyal to him in, in some ways. I haven't dated. I haven't, I've, I've pursued God, not um, worldly things. <clears throat> and I was very loyal to my pastor, but there, um, who founded the church here, and it grew to several thousand people. And in both instances, there was a time where I had to make a decision. Uh, was I going to hold on to those people and be loyal to them over God? For example, if my loyalty to my husband meant um, being quiet, knowing that in many ways um, uh, his plan had been to um, use the name of Christ to benefit, to have private jets and rich houses. And, uh, and so loyalty to him meant I would have a lot of worldly things with my husband, we would be Christian heroes and have huge platforms. But Loyalty to God um, meant losing everything, and uh, a lot of times I think all of us in friendships, in different relationships, uh, I think all of us have experienced a place where um, we have to choose, am I going to hold on to this person, be loyal to them more than what God says in His Word, and lose everything, lose possession, lose... I mean, that's what the persecuted church is about also. So... um, uh, we cannot have loyalty, uh, blind loyalty to anyone else, but but Christ. Even our loyalty to Christ is not com- completely blind. Uh, so, but loyalty um, is to God. If we are uh, not able to obey the Word of God, and there's another loyalty that's preventing us, and that's an idol that needs to be broken in our life. My guest, she's in Boise, Idaho, Nagme. Uh, the book, I Didn't Survive. What do you want people to take from this book, uh, Nagme, in, in our chat? What do you want them to take from this? Well, I've experienced war. I've experienced um, persecution myself, being threatened to be killed in Iran because I was a Christian. I uh, experienced being detained for Christ. Uh, but I've experienced revival, seeing revival, seeing the move of God. I've experienced abuse. I think my life is not a typical book. It's what life is. It's very up and down, twists and turns, good and bad. And I think everyone can connect to that uh, through their own life and what it means to hold on to Jesus and to see him pull you through and not just survive, but transform you to the person that you're called to be, to be more in the image of Christ, to be more of his representative in this world. So uh, I think uh, there's a lot what it means to surrender to God, to live a life that's surrendered to Him, and to see Him 
as we surrender to see him move in ways that we would have never expected. I'm going to give one example. One of the prayers I would pray as a nine-year-old girl since I got saved was, God, give me the nations. I want to share the gospel with the nations. Um, Twenty-some years, almost uh, 30 years later, I was in front of the United Nations sharing about Jesus. It was through Saeed's imprisonment, but I was sitting in front of the United Nations as I was sharing the gospel and the Bible, and what I was speaking was being translated in all of these different languages um, for for these nations to hear. And God reminded me of that prayer that I had prayer, uh, prayed as a little girl. It meant a hard road. It meant a narrow road. But uh, I've also seen God move in ways that uh, I um, we if, if we don't take those steps of obedience, it, it will be hard to see God move in that way. I've I've sat before Obama. I've sat before Trump. I've um, been able to share Jesus to many, whether on TV or to heads of state. And um, that comes when you uh, uh, go through all the things we just talked about and surrender and die to self and and learn what it means to be uh, led by God and to live a life of surrender. So I think everyone can apply, uh, um, uh, kind of connect to my book because life is not a simple straight line. It's ups and downs and twists and turns, but what does it mean to hold on to Jesus so tight and to learn and grow of what it means to honor Him and to follow Him and then see the move of the Holy Spirit? Folks, our guest has been Nagme Panahi. Her book, I Didn't Survive, Emerging Whole After Deception, Persecution and Hidden Abuse. What a book. What a read. What a guest. Well, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, We're back next weekend for more. It's AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Stay tuned. Good place to be. See you next weekend. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.